Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. Always good to be with you, Brian. So what's this I hear that uh, there is a holiday... I, you know, I think I pay pretty close attention. I mean, I like a day off as much as the next person, but uh, you were telling me that there's there's a holiday that more people need to be aware of, and now I'm all ears. Well, it's a great holiday in black history here in America, and you won't find it on the calendar, but possibly it should be, and possibly it will be someday. This is June 23rd, and January, June 23rd of 1948, was the birthday of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Ah. And Thomas is, of course, the senior member of the Supreme Court today. And as of today, he is 74 years old. I hadn't quite realized that he's actually three years younger than I am almost. But (laughs) anyway, this came from... An organization that I work with sometimes that is called Landmark Events. They give very fine Christian history tours all over the nation, particularly in the South and in the Northeast. And I often participate as a lecturer for their D.C. history, but I've also been a lecturer on their Grand Canyon tour and on their Spirit of the West tour to Western South Dakota and Nebraska, studying Native American history and things like that. But they publish every few weeks a landmark history highlight. By This is usually done by a good friend of mine, a good historian by the name of Bill Potter. And so I'm going to read this. It is titled, The Birth of Justice Clarence Thomas, June 23, 1948. The Supreme Court has always been a political football with the party in power seeking to perpetuate its beliefs and constitutional theories through Supreme Court appointments. The court reflects certain views of their own power, limited only by having to pass muster with the Senate. Either impeachable bad behavior or death forces removal from the court, the latter being by far the most common means of leaving the court, He probably should have added there that some just resign when they get older, too. But the political left will stop at nothing to prevent a new member of the court with original intent views. They pulled out all the stops when Clarence Thomas was nominated for justice in 1991. And as a black candidate, following the death of the liberal black member of the Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall, I just mentioned a little earlier as you and I were talking that this probably should be a more prominent day in black history than, than June, Juneteenth, as we call it. But let's talk a little more about Clarence Thomas. Justice Thomas was born June 23rd, 1948 in Pinpoint, Georgia. There's an interesting name for a town, isn't it? Living in Alabama for 30 some years, I find that Southern towns often have very interesting names. I know I'm rabbit trailing a little bit here, but we have a town here called Enterprise, another called Eclectic. But one of the most interesting names here in the South for a town is Slapout, Alabama. Wow. And where that town got its name, even its residents are not quite sure, but the 
belief is that it was originally a general store trading post located there that was basically the town at that time and that when you'd come in to buy something at the store, the owner would say, I'm slap out of it. But that's where the name may have come from. We don't really know. But Pinpoint, Georgia, near Savannah, his family were descendants of West African slaves and still spoke Gullah, which is a mixture of English and African words, some of which trace to the 17th century, that is the 1600s. His father left when he was two years old, and his mother earned pennies a day as a maid. Their house burned down, leaving the family homeless. And Clarence moved to Savannah to live with his mother's parents, where, for the first time, he had regular meals and indoor plumbing. At the age of 10, Thomas worked sunrise to sunset on a farm with his grandfather, who counseled, don't ever let the sunrise catch you in bed. I work very late at night many times, but I'm afraid that many times I do let the sun rise, <laughs> catch me in bed. Clarence Thomas went to Catholic parochial schools for his entire boyhood formal education, and for his BA attended Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. Having grown up speaking Gullah, majored in English literature to conquer the language in college. He graduated in 1871 cum laude, that is, with honors, having proven himself an accomplished and hard-working student. His... I'm sorry, the pages are mixed up here. I'm going to have to just skip over a little bit because they say that part is... Oh, is, oh I see what you mean here. It's, there's part of this that is lost. But just as Thomas began his law climb to the Supreme Court with his law career inauguration in Missouri, in 1984. He served as Assistant Attorney General under former Yale classmate Thomas Danforth, who moved to D.C. as Senator from Missouri in 1977. Thomas soon joined Danforth's staff in the nation's capital. President Ronald Reagan appointed Thomas to be head of the Office of Civil Rights and then to the Equal Opportunity, Employment Opportunity Commission. And I might add that that is the occasion on which I first met Clarence Thomas when I was teaching for the law school at Oral Roberts University. And when he came down to speak to us there as the director of the Office of the Civil Rights, Thomas held to his principles of individual responsibility and self-reliance in the face of stiff resistance by his mostly Democratic colleagues. A federal appeals court judgeship in 1990 came his way under George Bush Sr. His rather libertarian and original intent views did not seem to cause a barrier to cordial relations with more liberal members of his legal fraternity in the Senate. In 1991, Judge Thurgood Marshall announced his retirement from the Supreme Court and President Bush nominated Clarence Thomas to replace him. The nominee was known as a critic of affirmative action, the belief that minority candidates for jobs and offices should be given preferential treatment because of their color, presaging substantial resistance from highly partisan Democratic senators and civil rights activists, shrieking pro-abortion feminists feared that, as a Christian, Thomas might oppose the slaughter of unborn babies 
and support the repeal of O versus Wade, so they would form a bulwark of resistance to his appointment to the Supreme Court. The Senate Judiciary Committee allowed Thomas's nomination to go forward for full Senate confirmation without recommendation. In the grueling confirmation hearings, a former assistant of Thomas, when he was chairman of the EOC, Anita Hill, made allegations of sexual harassment, which were then leaked by the FBI to the press and brought to the public hearings of the Senate. I guess we were having problems with leaks from the FBI in those days, just as we have been in recent years as well. Tawdry recriminations by Hill were aired on national television, what Justice Thomas called a high-tech lynching by his lying accusers. He was narrowly confirmed. I'll tell you that I taught for the law school at O.W. Coburn School of Law at Oral Roberts University from 1981 to 86. Anita Hill was on the faculty with me there from approximately 84 to 86. I knew her quite well at the time. And I will simply say that her allegations did not convince me. And I supported Justice Thomas's confirmation. You say he was narrowly confirmed. And since those days, more than 30 years ago, Thomas has proven to be one of the most reliable conservative justices, perhaps the closest, along with the late Justice Scalia, to originalist interpretation of the Constitution. He has written more than 690 opinions and has been the third most dissenting justice. That is, has written the third most dissenting justices of any justice in the history of the court. He invokes federalism, that is, the idea that there are states' rights, in more cases than any other justice. He is one of six Roman Catholic justices currently serving on the court, and at age 74, the senior member of the United States Supreme Court. I'm going to comment on the originalist interpretation and I'm going to add the views of Chief Justice Rehnquist as well here that are slightly different. But let's look at those after the break. Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, it's fascinating. I've heard a lot about uh, Justice uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas in my lifetime, but actually knew very little about him. So I appreciate you filling in some of the details as uh, we observe his, his birthday. Well, you know, I'm 76, and one of the interesting facts about teaching history and constitutional law as a form of history, but teaching history when you're 76 years old is that a lot of the stuff that you teach as history is stuff that you remember happening. And those confirmation hearings with Justice Thomas and with Anita Hill, I remember them happening because I had known both of them before that time. In fact, I'd known Anita Hill quite well, but Let's put that aside right now and let's 
let's look right now to the issue of originalism. And that has become, become such a common word now, especially since the days of Justice Scalia and Chief Justice Rehnquist, that even a more liberal justice on the court, like Justice Kagan, I'll say about Justice Kagan that I don't always agree with her. In fact, I probably disagree with her more than I agree, but I have to say that she's bright, she's personal, and sometimes I find her opinions very refreshing and I can enjoy them. I cannot say the same about Justice Sotomayor, but anyway, Justice Kagan is sometimes refreshing, but she made the statement once concerning Justice Scalia, we are all originalists now. That is, that Justice Scalia in particular, but probably she'd have to say along with that, Justice Thomas and <clears throat> Justice Rehnquist, have forced all of us to start looking more at what the original intent of the framers was. But while I think you could probably say that Justice Rehnquist, who is a Lutheran, and Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, who are Catholics, were all originalists, their views of originalism were a little bit different. And if you read their opinions in detail, and sometimes especially their dissenting opinions, sometimes in a dissenting opinion, a justice goes more into his own philosophy than he does in a main opinion, but sometimes in those opinions, you can see the difference. Justice Rehnquist was very much concerned about what were the circumstances at the time the framers wrote that provision of the Constitution? What were they thinking? What things did they say that would indicate what they had in mind when they wrote those words? And when you read Justice Rehnquist's opinions, he will go at great length into the history of the time, what was going on then. He will quote extensively from other things the founding fathers had said. For example, he will look at Thomas Jefferson with his wall of separation statement, and he will say, don't forget Jefferson was in France at the time the Constitution and Bill of Rights were adopted, and his statement some 14 years later about wall of separation was written in the form of a informal, unofficial letter to the Danbury Baptists and can hardly be considered the definitive statement of what the First Amendment means, but he says it is a misleading metaphor that has done nothing but confuse our, just, our jurisprudence, and it should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. But he goes extensively into the history of the time. In his dissent on the flag-burning cases, where he did not agree with Justice Brennan that burning an American flag is protected as free speech by the First Amendment, he went extensively into the history of the flag and what its meaning is, and that it really stands above speech itself because it symbolizes the nation as a whole. Now, Justice Scalia was also a believer in original intent, and almost always you'd find that he and Justice Rehnquist and Justice Thomas would be on the same side in a case, but Justice Scalia would say, don't get all wrapped up in the history of the times and the other writings that the framers might have written. Histories, legislative histories included, can be sanitized and made to support a particular purpose. 
He said, just give me the plain words of the Constitution, and I'll tell you what those words mean. That was more his view of original intent. Thomas was a little bit in between. Thomas was more likely to say, let's get back to the first principle that they were looking at. For example, when we deal with the power of the federal government to regulate interstate commerce, and that was originally thought to mean a power to regulate commerce, that is, buying and selling of events going from one state to another, but gradually in the 1930s, we came to expand interstate commerce to include production that might substantially affect commerce and anything that might substantially affect commerce in a decision not too long ago in which the Supreme Court by a 5-4 vote said that, Lopez case said that a law that prohibits the possession of a firearm within, I believe, was 500 feet of a school building. And the Supreme Court said that this is not sufficiently related to commerce. It doesn't substantially enough affect commerce to be justified under the Commerce Clause. And so a federal law to this effect has to be struck down. Thomas agreed the law does not substantially affect commerce, and so he concurred with the majority, but in a separate opinion, he said, however, this whole test that we've been using, does it substantially affect commerce, is not a workable test. We are getting to the point now with internet and with so much going on between states that almost everything can be said to substantially affect almost everything else. We need to rethink the whole substantial effect test. In the meantime, he says, I'll go along with substantial effect test and say that this does not substantially affect commerce. So that's the way Justice Thomas looked at it. Now, another who strongly believes in original intent is Justice Alito, and we will certainly see more of that when his opinion is released, assuming it is released, and I'm convinced it will be released, although possibly not precisely in the form that he wrote the draft opinion, but how he looks extensively to conditions of the time. In fact, you might even say that his view is a little more philosophical, but compared to Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, his view of original intent might be a little bit more like Rehnquist's, but we'll see more of that as we read through his opinion coming up very soon. But anyway, so happy birthday, Justice Thomas. And you may be the senior member of the court, but as far as I'm concerned, you're a young man. And I hope you, <clears throat> you, <clears throat> I hope you serve in the court for many, many years to come. Well, I was hoping that today we could make an announcement that the Supreme Court has now overruled Roe versus Wade. I believe we're going to be able to make that announcement, but not today. And there will be more decisions released this week, and certainly more next week. Sometimes it seems the Supreme Court justices save their most controversial decisions until the very last ones of the term, the term which ends at the end of June. This year probably ends the 1st of July, because that's a Friday. But 
At any rate, maybe that's because they want to be able to get on a plane and get out of there if they have to, if things get too hot. And there are a lot of predictions that if, in fact, Dobbs versus Jackson does overrule Roe versus Wade, we may be in for a very violent summer. Some of the pro-abortion advocates have promised exactly that. And if you're a person who believes in murdering babies, then naturally violence might be your next course of action. But anyway, we are certainly hoping that the Supreme Court will uphold the Constitution, which leaves this matter to the states, and overrule this erroneous decision, Roe versus Wade. More after the break. We are back. This is Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're, we're, we're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, tell me more of your thoughts on the forthcoming decision and maybe some of the other decisions we ought to be keeping an eye out for. Where it does in Dobbs versus Jackson, I think it's almost certain that they are going to largely overrule Roe versus Wade. I'm not I think almost certain they're going to uphold the Mississippi abortion law, which prohibits abortion after 15 weeks. And I'm hoping they go all the way to overruling Roe versus Wade and saying that the Constitution guarantees no right to abortion, and therefore this is properly left to the states. But it could be that it'll be a more moderate ruling. But one thing else that if this remains the opinion of Justice Alito rather than of Justice Barrett or Kavanaugh or Justice Roberts, it will almost certainly be very close to overruling Roe versus Wade. And usually they try to apportion all these decisions about evenly among the nine justices. And so far, the decisions that have been announced this term in these last few weeks, very few of them have been Alito decisions. And so I think it's very likely that this is still going to be an Alito decision and that it's going to be a good decision. Another thing also that I can tell you is that on a day when they release opinions, and I'm told that they're expecting to release some more decisions on Thursday of this week and on Friday of this week, but when they release these decisions, the ones that are released are going to be released in a certain order. And it's not in alphabetical order or in the order of the importance of the case, but rather of the seniority of the judge or justice, I should say, who wrote the opinion, starting with the lowest. In other words, if the newest justice on the court, Justice Barrett, if she wrote one of the opinions that is going to be released, let's say tomorrow, hers will probably be the first one to be released. And if Justice Alito or Justice Thomas wrote it, it'll probably be one of the last. Anyway, so we'll see how, how that plays out in the next couple of days. One thing that might be a harbinger of good things to come on the abortion issue, though, is a ruling just uh, last Friday by the Iowa Supreme Court. Iowa, the legislature a couple of years ago, passed a fetal heartbeat bill. This was a bill that would prohibit abortion any time after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. And we believe the fetus's heartbeat 
is <clears throat> starts beating as early as the 18th day, but can be detected as early as the 28th day. Anyway, the Iowa Supreme Court several years ago struck down that law as violating a woman's right to abortion, but did so not on the basis of the U.S. Constitution, but on the basis of the Iowa Constitution. Now that is significant because each state Supreme Court is considered to be the final interpreter of its own state constitution. And so that meant that there was no way that that decision of the Iowa Supreme Court could be appealed to a federal court or to the U.S. Supreme Court. They would simply turn it down saying, Iowa said that's what their constitution means. That's the final word. Well, last Friday, the Iowa Supreme Court upheld another Iowa abortion statute. And in the process of doing so, they specifically overruled that previous decision of the Iowa Supreme Court. What had happened is in Iowa, Supreme Court justices are appointed with the governor with considerable constraints on how they can be appointed. They're not elected. And the governor had appointed several new conservative justices to the Iowa Supreme Court. And so that previous decision was overruled. And the new decision specifically says, nothing in the Iowa Constitution guarantees a right to abortion. That could be a harbinger as to what the U.S. Supreme Court is going to say in regard to the U.S. Constitution when this decision is released very soon. Yesterday also, there was a very important decision released by the U.S. Supreme Court on a religious liberty issue. I mentioned earlier the Shirtliff decision several weeks ago, in which the Supreme Court, in a 9-0 decision, said that a action by the city of Boston, refusing to allow Pastor Shirtliff and his church to fly their flag in a city park when they were having an event at the city park, after allowing over 300 other organizations, including gay pride organizations, to fly their flags on that flagpole, the Supreme Court said 9-0 that denying that same right to the church in this case was a case of discrimination against religion and violated their free exercise and free speech. We think that was a very good decision. Yesterday, they came down with another decision. In this decision, Carson versus Macon is the name of it. They, up, or they struck down as unconstitutional a Maine statute that we believe discriminates against religious education. A lot of us out here in the South and in the West don't realize that Although Maine is a northeastern state, a lot of Maine is wilderness and sparsely populated. And for that reason, there is a shortage of public schools in that area. And for that reason, the state has considered it economically more expedient rather than build public schools in areas where there would be very few children to simply give tuition assistance to parents to send their children to private schools. And that's what they've been doing for quite some time.
However, the main statute expressly said that it cannot go to religious schools. In other words, if you want to send your children to a public school, which is one in the area, fine, you can do so free. If you want to send your children to a secular private school, fine, you can do so with tuition assistance from the state. But if you want to send your children to religious private school, sorry, nothing doing. You get no help from the state then. Well, a couple of families, the Carsons and the Nelsons, filed a lawsuit in this case. Nelson, in particular, were sending their children, one of their children, to a religious school, but couldn't afford to send their other child to the religious school, and the state would not give them assistance. The state said, transfer your children to a secular school and we'll pay, not to that religious school. And so they filed a lawsuit against the state. They lost all the way through the courts up to the Supreme Court. Now, at the Supreme Court level, we at the Foundation for Moral Law filed an amicus brief in support of the Carsons and the Nelsons in this case. And we argued that you are discriminating against religious education. We pointed out that several years ago in the Trinity Lutheran Church case, the Supreme Court had issued a decision, Justice Gorsuch writing the opinion, in which the court simply said that when you are building parking lots for schools, you cannot discriminate against a certain school just because that school is run by a church. In the Espinoza case, just a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court took the same position. This again involved tuition assistance, and in this case, the Supreme Court said in the state, for the state of Montana, if you are providing tuition assistance for children going to secular private schools, you have to provide it for children going to religious private schools as well. And now we have what seems to be the same situation in Maine. The difference in Maine, according to Maine education officials and according to Maine's attorneys, was that in Montana, it, the issue was whether or not they were affiliated with a church. In Maine, it's not whether they are affiliated with a church. In Maine, the issue was whether they have a religious curriculum. In other words, you can be an affiliated church, you can be a, a school that is affiliated with a church, but if your curriculum is a secular curriculum, that's fine. It's only if you are teaching a religious worldview that you are not going to get the aid. Well, more on this after the break. our fourth and final segment of Constitution Classroom today with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, take it away. 
again, we're looking at the case of Mark of Carson versus Macon, the case the U.S. Supreme Court just decided yesterday involving the state of Maine and a tuition assistance program they were providing, helping parents send their children to private schools, but excluding all schools that had religious orientation in their form of education. In our brief to the Supreme Court, we argued on behalf of the Carsons and the Nelsons in that case, that this was an even more invidious form of discrimination than had existed in Montana, where they discriminated against schools based on their affiliation with the church. Here, you could be affiliated with the church, but so long as you didn't have a distinctively religious orientation to your curriculum, it would be okay. The problem with that is this requires the state to examine the curriculum, to examine the credentials of the teachers, probably even to observe in the classroom how the material is being presented to determine how, quote, religious, unquote, the material is, and then make a determination that this is too religious to have aid from the state. That is the very kind of excessive entanglement that the Supreme Court has previously said that they do not want to have the state involved in in dealing with religion in the public schools. Anyway, the Supreme Court, by a 6-3 vote, agreed. Justice Roberts, writing the majority opinion in this case, and we think that also is a good sign concerning future cases. And anyway, the Supreme Court has simply said in this case, once again, just seems like you don't get it, folks. We've been saying for decades, you can't discriminate against religion. And here you are, once again, discriminating against religion. And so they struck down the Maine statute, and Maine is going to have to either not provide any aid at all to private schools, in which case they're going to have to erect a lot of public schools in a lot of areas where it's not going to be economically feasible to do so, or else they're going to have to include religious education and treat it just the same as others. In fact, Justice Sotomayor, in her dissenting opinion of this case, said that this would involve discrimination because some of the schools that might be receiving aid if they allowed aid to religious schools would be schools that discriminated against the LGBT agenda and against LGBT students. That's ridiculous because already they could be giving aid to private schools that actively support the LGBT agenda. So why not to the other side of that issue as well, unless like Sotomayor, you would say there is only one side. Already, we as taxpayers are being forced to subsidize in the public schools a pro-gay agenda there. Why not the other? And others are saying you are forcing the state of Maine to subsidize religious schools. No, if they would read Justice Roberts's opinion, they would see that he is expressly saying the exact opposite. He is saying, you don't have to provide aid to private schools at all. All we are saying is that if you provide aid to private schools, you have to include religious schools along with the others. You cannot discriminate against religion. 
We said that back in the Mergens case involving equal access for religious groups meeting on campus in after-school hours. We said the same in the Lamb's Chapel case involving renting the facilities of the public schools to religious organizations on the same basis as others. To the Rosenbrock case involving funding of student organizations, the Widmar case involving student organizations meeting on college campuses. We said it in this Pinoza involving tuition for schools. We said it in Trinity involving parking lots for schools. When will you get the message? Equal access means exactly that. You don't discriminate against religion. Well, we have one more case that the Supreme Court has before it, and in all probability is going to decide either later this week or next week. I say going to decide. They probably decided it, just haven't released the decision yet. And this is Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. This is a case out in Washington. A lot of people are familiar with this more than the Carson case, but case involving Coach Kennedy. Coach Kennedy, a football coach for a high school in Bremerton, Washington, had a practice that at the close of a football game, he would go out to the 50-yard line and kneel in prayer. At first, he did this on his own, and then students and players would come out and join him, including some from the opposing team as well, and then people from the audience would come. And that went on until 2015 when the school district said, you're establishing religion by doing this. you got to stop doing this. And he said, I cannot stop doing it. My Lord tells me that I am to pray. And so he was fired. Cases kind of bounced back and forth in the court system for some time. But it is now before the Supreme Court. And again, we are awaiting a decision from the Supreme Court. Again, the Foundation for Moral Law wrote an amicus brief. And in our amicus brief, we argued that this is discrimination against religion. We argued that in Shirtliff, the flag case. We argued that in Carson, the aid to private schools case. We're arguing it here. That if Coach Kennedy is prohibited from praying on the 50-yard line. What about other people who speak? If he had gone out on the 50-yard line, in fact, they expressly said, you can go out there and give a pep talk. You can go out there and say anything you want to say. You just can't pray. If he had come out there in the 50-yard line, Shakespeare, unless he quoted so much out of Shakespeare that it's from the Bible, but... If he had quoted Shakespeare, if he had quoted Ralph Waldo Emerson, if he had just simply told jokes, that would have been fine. But you can't pray, and saying that you can't pray is discrimination against religion. It violates free exercise. It violates freedom of speech. Now, the state's argument on this is the same as the city's argument there in Boston, on the flag issue, where they said that what goes up and down on that flag goal is government speech. And the school districts are saying, 
what our coach says out there in a football game is government speech. Well, if that is the case, then anything the a teacher says, probably even more in the classroom than out in the football field, is government speech. And the court has clearly said that is not the case. Tinker versus Des Moines, way back in 19, the 1960s, where the court says that neither students nor teachers shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. Teachers, including coaches, have certain First Amendment rights to freedom of expression, and that includes religious expression. And so we are quite optimistic, especially after the Shirtliff case, that the Supreme Court is going to decide in favor of Coach Kennedy, saying that that is not government speech either, and therefore they are discriminating against his speech. But again, sometimes the Supreme Court surprises us, and we will see what they decide. Well, it's exciting to predict, but I wanted to get back to our discussion here of the precepts of Hebrew law. And we've been talking about these precepts for quite some time, and we've been interrupting them with current commentary on what's going on in the court, but among the things we have seen are the pre premise of Hebrew law being that God exists and that he is the source of all true law and that true law reflects his will and his character. Also that his justice, and he is a God of perfect justice as well as perfect righteousness, but his justice requires punishment for sin. He doesn't just write sin off. He requires punishment for it. But man being created in God's image and the object of God's love, God is also going to make sure that no innocent person is wrongly punished or is wrongly convicted. And so God has established human government to punish crime and preserve order. But before government punish crime, great precautions must be taken to ensure that no one is wrongly convicted. And we'll expound more on those next week.